think it was really inspirational for me to take a case from a younger lawyer and be able to add value and get him 10 times the amount of the settlement because I just knew the stuff. I knew the medicine. As a PI lawyer, it can be tempting to take all different types of cases, but it's only by becoming an expert in your niche that you can consistently unlock those big settlements. Now, do I know about many other things? No. I like to say I'm good at tennis and basketball that I love, but I pretty much suck. I'm really good at this, about adding some value to cases that involve medicine that hasn't been looked at. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading edge marketers give you exclusive access to grow strategies for your firm. Jeremy Tissett has seen it all. He's been on the defense side and the plaintiff side. He's had high profile clients and litigated cases in every county in California. I caught up with Jeremy to talk about how he transitioned to owning his own law firm, broke into the conference circuit, and how he became an expert on TBI. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. An important first step for any lawyer is to really understand the people around them. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Jeremy Tissett, president and founder of Tissett Law Firm. You know, I had some idea, even when I was in law school, that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. Uh, interestingly, I, I then worked for Warner Brothers uh, as an intern, and I realized someone said to me, a staff attorney, because this is really boring stuff. And it was, it was real transactional, and you don't get to meet uh, actors and and models and things like that right away. So, but when I was in, in law school, I did recognize, uh, even though I had, we had very little real training about being a trial lawyer. It was so much, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't practical. I hope it's changed, but I did realize when I had an opportunity to uh, speak in moot court, which is again, it would have been better if there was more more trial advocacy, but I did real well in that. I thought, well, maybe I can, and I had a, a, I had a partner whose father was a prominent DA and then judge. And he suggested to me that I should, I should, you know, really get into advocacy and probably would be a good trial lawyer. I really, at that point, didn't think about it because no one really taught me it in law school. Right. You know that, and that's pretty common. I hear different variations of law school where they don't prepare you for like the business side or, or like the there's just so many skills with a trial attorney. I know we could really dive deep into body language and tonality and preparation and just all those things. It sounds like, you know, from, from my research that like early on in your career, you, you really had an accelerated path, right? You were the youngest partner ever at a well-known defense firm, uh, Callahan, McCune and Willis. Tell me a little bit about that, that path. And, and at that time you were on the, the defense side. Right. And it was a, it was kind of a little bit different than most defense firms. But, you know, what I I came in and, and I wasn't one of these kids who had and I see a lot of this now where they say, you know, just start your own firm. Right. I never really wanted to do that because I thought, look, I had never had grown up with a lot of money. And by the time I got out of law school, I had worked since I was 16, maybe even earlier, had a paper out when I was 12. You know, my father didn't do poorly, but he wanted me to work. And so I always had. And so I was so glad to get a job that during the time I had done pretty well in law school. But during the time of uh, we were graduating, they always said it's a tight legal market. Right. And so I was so glad I clerked for them for a while and they offered me a job. And it, it really wasn't much money. They were a little tight, but they gave what they did 
is they gave an opportunity that if you could bring some business in, uh, that you would have a chance to elevate. And by you know the third or fourth year, I was making more than some partners, uh, even though the partnership track would have been uh, six, seven, eight years minimum. And so, yeah, I, I took off uh, because I saw, I, you know, look, you go to, people go to law school and they think it's just a ticket to, you know, or write your ticket to a big salary. But as you know, it's really competitive out there. So I, I did start out on this trajectory, but, you know, things changed and there were some bumps along the road. So let's talk about that. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly saturated. And, and we're going to talk about some of the things that you're doing for like thought leadership and, and, and original content and being an expert. And we're really going to dive into that, particularly the TBI space, some of those web jams, things like that. But let's take it back a step. So you were, you were rainmaking, you're bringing in the revenue. So like early on, what was it a relationship thing to kind of bring in some extra cases? Like what were some of the actions you were taking back then? Yeah. So I think it, it's just a question of reinventing. So I had, I, fortunately, the industry, I wasn't aware of what entirely what was going on in personal injury, but, you know, I'm one of the few people that, I hate to have to admit this age-wise, that I've seen the cycles a few times, the way it goes. And we're facing a cycle right now where we have some challenges to justice uh, and our ability and some initiatives that may, may challenge us here in California. And so what we were seeing then was that the the larger firms, like say the defense firms, a lot of people had to work for at getting coming out of law school. I didn't have the family money to start my own firm, and I needed. I drove a ten or twelve year old Nissan Sentra around the Pepperdine Law School campus, and people thought you went to Pepperdine, you were rich. I, you know, I had part of a scholarship, but I, I was like, I didn't feel real good about myself. So some of the things they change over time, and you know, I was able to, in terms of my trajectory, I was. I was encouraged to go get business. And, and some of my colleagues then were, who had also gone to defense firms, they're like, I'd go out with them for drinks after work and they'd be like, wow, your firm gives you that? Because most of them would give them like a salary and then they would maybe bonus them for, you know, to grind away and bill hours. But my firm recognized that insurance defense firms, outside firms were a dying breed because of the fact that at that time, uh, the insurance companies had figured out to go in-house. So instead of paying the outside firms, they were going to they were going to hire those same lawyers and pay them a salary and not have to worry about you know these massive bills. And so they recognized we got to get into some other practice areas. And in fact, they did. And that's what allowed me to get into plaintiff law, because they let me actually take plaintiff cases that were not conflicted. And that's what I really wanted to do. I had a couple of good role models in that area. Some, actually some plant floors that rented space from us. And I thought they were the coolest people because I, I, you know, they were, they had exciting stuff going on and I was kind of billing and I did get to try cases right away. I had the type of boss who said, you take the file, you go with it. And, and if it goes, ends up going to trial, um, we're not going to pull you off it unless you screw something up along the way. And I didn't. So, so I tried more cases than people tried because, you know, they would say like most of these cases settle. And all of a sudden I found myself in, in two or three trials in the first couple of years. So that was cool. That's amazing. And, and, you know, most lawyers don't get those reps. They don't get to get that experience. And, you know, specifically, you kind of, you know, you forecasted, saw kind of where the area, where the, the law was going on the plaintiff side, and you had these relationships you that you really built and developed. But you know, I kind of want to ask, you know, what skills did you learn as a defense attorney that really helped you on the plaintiff side that maybe the common personal injury law firm or attorney would really have or see? Yeah, I think it's, 
look, I don't like to pontificate to people about but what they don't know. But I realized, I've realized even in the last few years, all the things that I need to have more depth of knowledge on. And I just think one of the one of the things, first off, is just I'm not saying everybody has to do this, but you know, you're working for a firm. I happen to work for trial lawyers who just really, you know, as people, they can be difficult. I'm not sure about their personal lives, but but they were uh they, they were really good trial lawyers. And you know, I, I learned a skill set from them. And, and they and they they were going against like the biggest personal injury lawyers. And if you lose those cases, you're going to get fired. I mean, these are these are cases where we're getting paid hourly and they were low rates, right? Uh, and we had an opportunity, you know, we were given money by the insurance company to hire experts. But if you lose a case to one of these big boys who you know who they are, and it's a $30, $40 million hit, you're out the door. And so anybody who thinks that this is just, was just like, you know, hey, you just go bill. I think it gives you a experience. It gives you so much background. So, you know, I always talk to people about that. And I think one of the ways we, we started, you, you, were, you were mentioning like TBI Med Legal or some of the other platforms I started speaking on after COVID. One of the first webinars we did was like, was pulling back the curtain on what are the different stages in a case that a defense lawyer looks at the case. And so I had that information and I can't see how that couldn't be valuable. So it's interesting, right? Yeah, it, it's you know, the interesting part that I liked hearing was like, a lot of people are like focused on the quantitative. And, and I, I guess knowing the outcome of that, you could be fired, like really helps you focus on the end result of winning. And you look at things in a different perspective. Right, right. And we knew, you know, there was one lawyer in this kind of, it's all about the culture too. One of the reasons I eventually had to leave, and I wish I had done it sooner, we'll talk about that later, was that, you know, yes, we were given opportunities to try cases, but there was, I remember there was one younger partner there who's really good at the law and knew the civil procedure code. But, you know, I'm like, if, if this woman walks into the court with, you know who, um, it's going to be over for her because she didn't have that charm. She's not going to be able to handle that. And then it's going to wow the jury. And sure enough, it did. And, you know, we had two or three people that could go into trial that were going to be able to tell the jury zero on a case. And so I always look at it when I'm working on my plaintiff cases, 15 plus years of doing it. And, you know, I got to the point where I was doing catastrophic case defense. I mean, I started out great. I started, they give me the smaller files and then it's the same, it's just, it's just a spectrum, right? So you're just doing the same thing. Yeah. And, and let's talk about that. So you, you went out, you started your own firm. So, so how did that come about? You decided to kind of put your flag in the ground, so to speak, you know, so you knew it was time and, and you, you had this confidence of, of the reps, the experience. So, so tell me a little bit about. Well, it's a little more difficult than that. So, so I can't sugarcoat it. I had, you know, as you pointed out from looking at my background, I had like this fast trajectory, you know, of course, whether it was defense or plaintiff, you know, you, it happens when, when you come out of law school, you, in my opinion, you have, if, if you're an ambitious and a go-getter, like every year counts, right? And so you're like, where do I need to be at this year? And I, I thought early, I wanted to be a partner or I wanted to have this level of revenue. I also want to build up my client base. I wanted trial experience. So every year I looked at myself, but when you get to like five, seven, eight years, where do, it, it kind of becomes a blur, it's scary. 
And, and so what, you know, I remember one of the reasons I stuck around was because I really liked the culture of the firm. And I think that's so important, whether you're a plaintiff or defense, it it's, has such an impact on you. We had this culture where when we win cases, we'd have a celebration, we'd have the, like, like the main guy would come up from the other office and he was such a cool guy, he'd take us out. And as a young lawyer, it was so cool to me, you know? And, and, and I love the camaraderie of it all. Uh, and and they never had, you know, it was not a lot of negativity. Well, eventually there's culture can change. And there was at least one partner that came in that was just out to kind of ruin everything. And unfortunately, where I was at, I was in a pretty comfortable place. I was earning a you know pretty good salary. But more importantly, I had got a big cut of the clients I brought in. Plus, I, was, I figured out a system to bill effectively and was one of the top billers. And I worked my ass off, but you know, it was it was a combination of things. It was hard to leave. I can't tell you it was easy. If I had done it at two or three years, I would have been used to a lower income. But once you're used to all these expenses in life, family and mortgage and all these things, it's hard to leave. And you know, a lot of these outfits today will encourage lawyers to just, you know, open up your own practice. Well, I don't know. If you know something, do it. <laughs> but but so I it was a struggle. It was a struggle to leave. I should have left earlier, maybe, and I didn't have an idea. I knew I was going to do plaintiff work, and I had mostly plaintiff cases that I was going to pursue, but I was really worried about my day-to-day income. You know, plaintiff work, like I was, right. I'm a conservative guy about that. I was so, I, I had to take, I had a defense client. I had to take that with me. So I had all this weird imbalanced stuff. Like, I'm like, I got to make 20% to pay all my lifestyle that I have now, you know, right. at 20 at 25, it would have been, it would have been like, fine. I finally got myself like a little BMW after law school, but now I was like, I'm used to nice stuff. <laughs> That's one thing that nobody talks about, right. Is the lifestyle creep. So you, you make more money, your lifestyle enhances. And then it's like, okay, you know, when, when you don't, when you don't have uh, this this lifestyle, it's a lot easier to just go take a big risk because if you lose, you you lose like whatever. But you know, so you really carved out a niche in in catastrophic and, and TBI specifically. You you do a lot of public speaking, particularly the TBI Med Legal Institute. You have your TBI web jams. Um, you spoke at Lottie Groff, the largest ortho related conference. You know, so you had a niche within a niche. So tell me a little bit about that strategy and kind of what what drew you to that area of the law. Yeah, I think it was a couple of things that 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 got me interested in it. But I I, I always had look when you're a defense lawyer, you take really deep dives, hopefully on medical records and experts. And 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 so I I had a couple of experiences where you know I had to cross examine. I think I can think of one in particular. I would cross examined an expert, and he actually worked for had worked for us, our law firm, and he smoked me in the cross-examination. And he walked out of the courtroom and said something like, sorry, Jeremy, <laughs> you know, hope you still hire me at your firm because we were the big boys paying the big bucks. And so, you know, I really just got interested in like, God, how to do this well and took taking deep dives on the medicine. And so, you know, I thought it was just, and then I, you know, I just met, I think particularly around, not that I hadn't done some of this before, but I think I met a couple of people in the last five years that were kind of life-changing for me, people that were really positive, 
inspirational, but also like had done really well in this industry. And I think before I thought, well, I don't really need those people. Um, or I don't want to go into that circle because then I have to go to all these conventions and try to meet people. I hate the word networking. So I found some people that were like, you, you know, you would be good on speaking on this platform because first off, you know, you've done this for a while. You must know something, you know, you see somebody who does it for five years. Look, sometimes they know more than I do about things. I never disparage that person, but I got a chance to do it and I was able to shine on it. And then I got asked to do other things. And I just really, I started to really concentrate on like, I really want to know more. Uh, it's such a cutting edge area, like traumatic brain injury cases. Wow. It's like, so, you know, ortho is too. It's not what it used to be. And the industry's changing like faster than it ever has, right? Jeremy has become a bona fide expert on TBI, but that doesn't happen overnight. So I asked him, how did he develop his knowledge of medicine? I remember speaking at a conference and someone saying to me, or being at a conference and someone saying, Jeremy, we haven't seen you around because like all these marketers show up for the conference and they know me as somewhat of a personality, but the side they don't know is me grinding also to get really ready for things. And so I remember getting to this conference early and and literally like, you know, having a, a decent enough room to do it and then having access to a couple of my marketing or, you know, graphics people, et cetera, and putting, you know, finalizing this presentation. And I didn't go out until after it was done. So I just worked like exceptionally hard. And, and what I thought, Chris, was the pe look at the list of people that are speaking at this thing. If I get up there in front of them who have spoken more than me, even though I, I kind of flew under the radar. I flew under the radar for years after I started my own practice because I didn't think it was important to, so if I was doing well, like I couldn't handle the business I had, I didn't need to be out there doing speaking engagements or as much marketing. And I, I you know, you don't know what you, you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. I mean, you, you think you don't need something. I think thought I didn't need it. And now I see how much I need it how much I still need to learn. So I, you know, a lot of it was motivated, Chris, I don't know if that answers the question, from wanting to do, not embarrass myself in front of like some of these names or who you know, who are some of the you know, best, uh, best thought of trial lawyers in the country. I'm going to get up on a stage with them and not know the medicine or they're saying that's wrong. So I would just, wow, I would just prepare like I prepare for a trial where in one of these trials where you think the worst thing's coming. I always think in a trial, I'm always surprised that they don't bring up the one or two things they should. And, but I'm waiting for that knife in the back. So that's where I come from. That, that focus and work ethics. Amazing. And I, and I imagine too, after you speak at the event, it's a little bit easier to do the networking. Uh, I kind of joke with you before this uh, interview that, you know, I don't do a lot of conferences because I just don't naturally network. Some people have that skill where they can just meet someone and build a rapport I feel like awkward, like in the chair <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I want to just tell you a quick little story if we have time. So I did a, a webinar and I'd like to see, I could, we could talk later about how people can get access, but I was given permission to do a webinar on the platform about conferences and how to, how to get the most out of a conference at this particular conference, but just generally. And I was get, you know, and so I was glad I was given an opportunity to do that. And, and a couple people contacted me and I've said things like this before because I am pretty blunt. I have the East Coast thing going, Boston thing, where I'm a native from. Uh, and so, you know, I've softened it a little bit. But, you know, I, a couple people said it was the most brutally honest thing they'd heard on a web jam. And I talked about, like, I won't go too deep into it, things that people do at conferences and how when I was transitioning to plaintiff law, 
I was like treated like a total outsider and not poor me, but like I would go to these things and everybody had their little private parties. I wasn't getting invited to those things. I walked down the hall and be like, hey, giving each other high fives. No one would say hello to me. I was surprised I didn't know more people because I thought, well, I'm a defense. I was a defense lawyer, but they had their crew and people that referred them cases and they always hung out there. And so I was like, wow, this is not networking. <laughs> and they would sit down and some of these people were like just sitting there, never say hello, but yet the, the advertisement for the conference would say, come and network. No, and I'm, I, I can be an extrovert sometimes when I'm working hard and I don't want, you know, I need my time off from people, but I thought I was like pretty extroverted at these things and I couldn't do any networking. No one wanted to talk to me. Jeremy is now firmly established in the conference world. So as a former outsider who's gotten his foot in the door, what's his advice on breaking into those closed circles? Yeah, I, I guess I come from another way. I, I think my advice to my, to my colleagues is that if you should be, if you're, if you're like a name guy or you have your click or you have your little circle for your dinner or your guys that you high five with in the casino at Cala, that you like bring somebody else in, you know, bring, bring in that, that guy that's the defense lawyer. He could be a valuable asset to your firm and for referrals. Say hello to him and get to know who he is because the same people see the same people over and over again. It's the same people speaking. It's the same people that at the parties, they see each other everywhere and that becomes camaraderie. But like, I think the advice to people is, I don't have advice for the ones that are, that are getting mistreated. I just, I, I think that you need to keep going and hopefully people like me will be a little kinder and will reach out to you because now that I have some notoriety in the profession or whatever you want to call it, I see how like, how I could be a jerk too, because I, I look like someone who like knows everyone at the convention. I don't want to be that guy. You know, I got to give a shout out to Paul Faust because I don't go to hardly any conferences, but I just really remember Paul made me incredibly comfortable. The one conference I did, he was like really interested in who I was and and just, uh, yeah, so though yourself and those types of individuals are just incredibly helpful for, for someone like myself that's introverted or just doesn't make connections as easy. Um, I kind of want to shift over your involvement in the Los Angeles uh, trial lawyers charities. Now you're a board member of the LATLC and, and it's, you mentioned it's, it's really changed your life in a, in a different type of way. And I was just wondering if you could kind of speak on that a bit. Yeah, this might, might surprise people because people are always interested in, in knowing like, what did you do to build your firm? How did you get these speaking engagements? how did you get onto media? How did you get asked to do these things? And how are you getting like TBI cases, right? That's what you, I mean, that's what everything is. And that's all anybody wants to talk to me about. But, you know, and then you think if you start talking about this, you're going to ask them for money. So what ended up happening was that I went to an event about six years ago. And it was, this is to try to simplify it. It was just like, I had this energy that I felt, and it may sound like a little spiritual, but I had this energy I felt like this is a circle I wanted to be in. And it turned out that those people were, you know, not all of them were, some of them were people that, you know, didn't try cases, you know, newer lawyers. And then there were like some of the people that sit on the LATLC board with me or some of the, you know, the biggest trial lawyers in California. Um, and so I met like one gentleman who was an older guy. I was there with one of my office manager, my office manager at the time. And I felt like, wow, this is like, it's not like this thing. Oh, I'm just going to give back and feel like some guilt that I got to, you know, do that because I've done pretty well. 
but it was like, wow, I feel like this is a, this was the beginning, Chris, in a lot of ways of me wanting to be part of that circle, like that conference circle, so to speak, even though it wasn't a conference. And I did it at a charity event. It was one of our volunteer events. We do them about seven, eight, nine times a year where we, 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 what we do is it's basically the attorneys and the, and the vendors and some other people who give to the LA Travelers Charities and then we give directly back way more than the minimum that's rated to be a good charity or 501c3 is given back directly in the community. So, you know, we're not, we're trying to make a big dent locally uh, for, for like victims, homelessness, battered women, children that are disabled. And we did that with our great trike giveaway. And so it's something that has grown. Like everybody wants to be part of it. Some people don't recognize how important it will be for them though. It elevated me. So once I got in that circle, I thought, well, maybe I do want to associate with these people. So that's how it changed. LATLC.org. <laughs> that's incredible. So, you know, and it's, I like the, you know, it's that, that you hear it before, you know, give without expecting anything in return, but when you can actually see the impact when you're helping these different organizations, homelessness, um, you know, all the different areas, it's, it's just, it brings you, it brings it around full circle, like for your life and just how you feel from an emotional type level. Yeah. And I also say that what's interesting is I said this to a couple of the guys, when I first got elected to the board, they assigned me the hardest duties, which is to go out contact vendors mostly, right. And ask them for money. Okay. And, and this is a, it, look, most of what I do all day, I ask people for money for, to sell my cases, right? And, and for other things. And, you know, you know, what you're, you know what you're dealing with insurance companies and defense lawyers. You're used to that, like over and over again. It says you're always complaining about grinding it, you know, doing the same thing. And it was like, okay, so I got rejections for that. But I was like, this is a kind of a cool rejection. Cause I'm like, what? I know you've made like a trillion dollars. You don't want to give a thousand bucks to put your name up and have a little logo that you give back. I'm like, fine, you know, I felt a lot better than some adjuster telling me my case was crap, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was a different ways to ask for money. That's great. That's great. And, you know, the other thing I want to talk about is you have a lot of experience with like high profile cases, right? So you're quoted in Fox regarding the Aaron Andrews case that was just very, very public. And I was going to ask, you know, you know, what tips would you give an attorney who finds themselves in a situation where it could have the potential to get media attention? You know, how do you get, you know, quoted in Fox business? You know, what goes into getting more attention in the media? Yeah, I think I think it's less about focusing on that and maybe try, I, I will say this, and just to be really blunt, let's not sugarcoat it. When you have a client, one client, like how many cases have I handled? I, I have a boutique firm, great professional staff, but we're not a mill, right? So so we try to handle, you know, mostly high stakes cases, and then we'll, we'll do some other stuff that, that we like. But, it, you know, well, you're not going to get that many cases with someone famous. I, I kind of have this weird thing where people think, because I'm in LA, I'm Beverly Hills, and I I have some social media with some celebrities or close to it that they're like, oh, he's an entertainment lawyer, which I wanted to be years ago. But I have personal injury cases with some celebrities or entertainment folks. And, you know, we have crossed over over the years into helping them with some of their litigation. But, you know, we don't put together contracts for agents. Sometimes people will call me our contracts for movies. But I'll tell you one case with a, with a celebrity. It really like everybody cares about this. I know you know this, Chris, but it's like everybody. I could have like the most interesting legal case ever, the biggest traumatic brain injury case, a non-celebrity. Everyone wants to hear about the time I represented that celebrity on, on a fender bender. 
you know, it does help. Uh, I'm not suggesting, you know, you should go out and try to get those. I think some people are really focused on it, but I'm fortunate that I do have like a, a client base that comes to me from that. And when, and when I get those cases, I, I remember having a doctor who had, I sent him a, some cases and and I saw him at a convention and he couldn't stop talking to me about this like semi-celebrity I sent him how excited he was about that right so I mean if you can get that you know and and play it up um, it's probably going to help your business I hate to say it it's like the Kardashian syndrome right those those client testimonials and I was going to ask you kind of a funny question with like your mom or your dad when they're introducing you to you know one of their friends do they say you know, here's my son, you know, expert litigator TBI. Like, how do they make that introduction? Do they do they throw those curveballs in there of some of the celebrities? Like one of the reasons I was interested, I have a couple people in my family that were sort of, you know, they're no big shots, but they were in the entertainment industry. And I I really think that it's kind of like that, like like because neither of my parents are like braggart type people. They're just it's hard for them and they're pretty humble right. about it. But you know, everybody does that with their kids to some degree. So I think it's much easier to entree. It's harder to say, you know, this is what my kid does. And he's, you know, a litigator. He gets really deep into the science and the medicine. It's easier to say, like, he represented this person. And I've had, even my my mom come to me or someone say to me, my family, like, I saw your thing about this. And they're not interested in the the deep, like, medicine, like the greatest case I ever had in TBI. They're interested, like, I saw that you represented this person or a picture of you saying, this is my client that won an Oscar or something and so right I don't know if that answers the Chris but well well let's talk about this let's talk about this this is your stage for the PI attorneys listening let's talk about one of those big TBI cases do you have one that really stands out that was very rewarding from like a personal gratif- gratification not only that but but maybe also that that big in, you know big result um is there a case that comes to mind yeah well I'm, I'm just thinking of one one now that we have for instance or so what I've tried to do is I basically have Kind of gone all in on 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 really understanding traumatic brain injury, and we have technology that keeps changing, and so I think I did have a couple change cases that kind of like changed my life. When I was working even at the at the Callahan firm, um, we started doing. This is where I realized I wanted to do plan for because we started doing class action cases on uh, and, and you know I, I don't really. I focus on single plaintiff cases mostly now, and, and it's a passion of mine because I like the connection directly with the person, and I really want to help the victim. But you know, one of the cases I worked on that kind of changed my trajectory was as I was coming out of starting my own firm. We were one of the first firms, and I got to lead it, and I was certified as the class counsel on a couple of these wage and hour cases. And, and I started, and that's like led me into be able to get like bigger TBI cases and things like that. Cause no one, no one saw me as that person. So we had, you know, we had a settlement in that case of $30 million. And, and then I started doing like, you know, million, million, millions, you know, five millions. And I hate to talk about numbers. Like, I don't like numbers where they, the firms just try to one up each other. And I almost feel like they're being deceitful, but look, it's as exceptions to things. So if I'm going to tell you, I settled a million dollar case, which is not so big, I'm going to tell you that maybe over the 10 million, because I'm going to tell you the struggle I had in doing it. And, and, and what was what went on that made it so difficult? Because if it's an Uber case and the person had a hematoma and was in the hospital, if you can't sell that for the million dollar policy, you've got a real problem. But I also had some really interesting cases that involve opening up policies, uh, open limit policies, which are people think are jackpots, but 
That's why I always try to say the learn, do, teach thing. I, it's unbelievable. I see a lot with these, there's a few organizations that say, just go on your own, open your own firm. And then I have these lawyers come to me because fortunately I, I do have lawyers that come either for co-counseling relationships and I'll just mentor them because all I have left now is to give back. And so I, you know, I'd like to be compensated, but I will go, th- I'll take one case and mentor them on five because I look at them and I go, look, I mean, this, I don't know a lot of things in life. And I used to think I knew a lot about a little, but I only know like 10 things. And one of them is like, here's how you handle an orthopedic case and you're not getting value out of it. So to answer your question, I think it was really inspirational for me to take a case from a younger lawyer and be able to add value and get him 10 times the amount of the settlement because I just knew the stuff. I knew the medicine. Now, do I know about many other things? No. I'd like to say I'm good at tennis and basketball that I love, but I pretty much suck. I'm really good at this about adding some value to cases that involve medicine that hasn't been looked at. That's amazing. And I got to imagine the, those individuals that you're working with, that you're mentoring, my gosh, just to have that, you said review five cases to their one, that's just an incredible value add, you know, especially when they're unsure of how to add value to those types of cases. Yeah. And, and, look, it's really competitive out there. We're also seeing firms that settle cases really low, mill firms. Um, you know, there's so many things going on in the industry that are so different. I see it in cycles. We are have to, we're facing potential challenges it, besides opening up, you know, to, to non, non-lawyers and all that, right? At the same time, it's like a double-headed monster coming at us. And so people need the most help they can get. We need to join together. And when I started, there was like kind of every every firm, every personal injury firm was like in LA was like the solo guy who didn't have much money. And then there were a few monsters. And now, and, but they were the monsters were like the one guy, you know, the name guy, and and they had like a you know, relatively small firm and the one big trial lawyer. The business has changed so much because now you have the, and they're good, they're fine. I mean, we've, what's great is like pre litigation firms. It's great. You know what you know. We didn't have those. Those did not exist in, in, in 1997. They didn't really exist in 2007. You know, you had a couple, th- I won't mention the names that did billboards. But everyone kind of like took the case as far as they could go. And then maybe they associated it in like a big name if the case was like turned out to be catastrophic, right? Now it's a segment. So what I'm seeing is I'm able to help. There's not that many, uh, comparatively speaking, lawyers that are really going the trenches. And so I don't mind doing it because that's all I know, <laughs> you know, right? So the pre-lit firms are good for me. I'm here for them. I respect them. They can get cases done quickly. They have to learn how to get cases done at high values. A lot of them, some will sell low, but some of them realize that like we have to develop new skills because we're not going to take them into litigation. And if we do, we're going to have to pay a, a, a substantial fee to a litigator like me. So it's a, I respect each one and I don't, right, Chris, the industry's changed and we have all these different types of firms. With all the saturation in the legal industry, the best way to maximize value is often to niche down. I asked Jeremy how he came to that strategy over his career. My biggest problem I had was that I was insecure about my ability to maintain my income as I spent a lot of money building out my firm. And I was used to somebody else paying the bills, right? So, you know, and I just, it's one thing if, if you had like a family who could help you with that 
or if you had, like you said, if you're younger, you're not used to having income, but I was really worried about how will I maintain my lifestyle and keep up with my bills. And at that time, I thought the way to do it was to like diversify it out, right? To just be doing business lit, entertainment lit, and like have some defense cases. And so it, it like, it's, it really took me a long time to get into this point where I basically can tell people, I really just want to work on traumatic brain injury, catastrophic cases. I'm still interested in spine surgery cases, spine stimulator cases, those things. But I really don't, I'm not, I don't know. I like to tell when people call for the case, I like to say, I don't know. When they ask me that family law question, right? <laughs> right. What, what you just said there was, it reminds me of that book Range by David Epstein. So everyone talks about, oh, you got a niche, you got a niche. But you have to have these experiences before you have the opportunity to niche, to like to be able to see the opportunity. Oh, true. Because yeah. they made the example of Nadal, like he he played all these different sports before he found out that he had a, a, an extreme competency in tennis. But like, what if he niched down at the beginning only into basketball? Like, how good of, would he have been? Like, who knows? So yeah. I like that that you had these these broader experiences Amazing. and you saw your your niche, your specialty. Yeah, that's wow. That was so well put, Chris. I didn't think of it that way. I, I think that it took me a while, and and we go look. I'm I'm more cognizant of. You mentioned another thing we should talk about, or that we're talking about. I guess is that you know, how how much the industry changed even in just COVID, right? It seems kind of obvious, but now, like, I'm hiring. If I have to hire a new attorney, right? Which I, you know, we just got bar results in California. A lot of pastors, a lot of flood, you know, huge amount of pastors. There's a lot of flooding of the legal market. Sorry to my new attorney friends. Uh, but, you know, I look at like I, my needs are different now, even as a litigator, because I used to need somebody. So if I went to a deposition for two hours, I had to drive all the way to West Covina. And now I can do it on Zoom. So I don't have as much. And it goes on and on and on. You know, I used to have if I was doing a big case where there were multiple parties, I needed to have a staff member like almost always to just print the mailings. The mailings were like on a desk, right? For a little firm, uh, a firm that's, you know, growing, it doesn't want to be that big and wants to just take on niche cases. Uh, that was like really time consuming and expensive. Now, now I don't even have to go into the physical mailbox anymore. That's huge for us. Right, right. Zoom has just, in all these technological advancements have just really accelerated during this time. I even think of things like like interviews, right? You're doing the in-person interviews and now you can record them via Zoom or do something like Spark Hire because after I do say 10 interviews, it's like everybody kind of blends together. I'm like, Who is this? which person said that? Right. Even if I take flawless notes, but if you know I can go back and watch the recording, I'm good to go. Right. It, it's expensive too. I was telling trying to explain to one of my new associates about you know, this client doesn't want me to take in that deposition. I have a strategy for it, but it's like, you know, court reporters may be a dying breed, I hate to say, because why can't we just do this electronic, right? We're doing it. It's so crazy. Like court reporters, and again, not to, I want everybody to have their job because, you know, we could be obsolete as attorneys, um, but, you know, it's like, we got to move with the technology. I mean, if we're doing that, like what we learned from Zoom and not only that, like I was saying, like the ability to just, we were still, you had to mail serve everything. Okay. And like, Hey, we, I couldn't get in my office in Beverly Hills. You know why? Because the national guard was outside during the riot. <laughs> so I have a picture of not only, it wasn't because you couldn't go in because of COVID and that was 
a thing too. You know, they would send a message around, hey, there's COVID in the building. <laughs> and then I tell my people, they're like, I'm not going in. And I like to have people in the office unless I feel like that they're really good working outside the office. I'm a little traditional. But I went down the street, I was crossing, uh, I guess, Rodeo Drive, and I'm going to my office on Camden. And I literally just shout, I couldn't get in the office. They wouldn't let me in the office. I had to walk around, and there was the National Guard there. So, whoa, does life change? such a change looking back it's like look like there there were some definite positives like especially in the legal industry you know it's like 10 20 years advanced where where they the acceleration of what they probably oh, would have would have experienced and yeah. jeremy this is this has been awesome speaking with you we, we cover a lot of amazing topics uh from marketing to to niching to to just hard work and everything you know where can people go to get in touch with you to learn more Okay, well, first off, we are rebranding our website as a national website because I have been asked to try cases and I just got back from Austin, Texas, but really quickly go to my IG at Tissot, T-I-S-S-O-T-E-S-Q. Uh, you can also, I'm sure you'll have it up there, email me at J-T-I-S-S-O-T at T-I-S-S-O-T-Law.com. Uh, you will also see me, you'll see me on the TBI platform. If you follow me on IG and Facebook, you'll see my speaking engagements, my trials, my webinars. And, you know, I'm talking about a lot of other things that are really important in the industry. I'll be, you know, such as going to CAOC. Chris, it's been amazing to be here. Uh, I really appreciate the time. I mean, we have so much more to talk about, uh, but we covered a lot. Jeremy's got such a unique perspective because he's been all over the business from outsider to the top. And what I find interesting about his journey is that though he's found his niche now, it took a whole lot of exploration. But while he was exploring, he was getting his reps in the courtroom. He was grinding to learn more about the subject area, preparing for a conference like he would prepare for a trial. And now that he's successful, he's reaching out to others through his mentorship and his charity work. So for young lawyers out there, find a situation where you can get trial experience at a subject that you can really sink your teeth into. And for the more established crowd, open your circle, offer a hand to the outsider. It could be great for your business. I'd like to thank Jeremy Tissett of Tissett Law Firm for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.